The Gospel reading is from the 10th chapter of Luke's Gospel. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where Jesus himself intended to go. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way. See, I am sending you out like lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if anyone there is there who shares in peace, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking, whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves to be paid. Do not move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you. Cure the sick who are there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not welcome you, go out into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet know this, the kingdom of God has come near. Whoever listens to you listens to me, and whoever rejects you rejects me, and whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. And the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, in your name, even the demons submit to us. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. See, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this, that the spirits submit to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The word of the Lord. In one of Paul's letters, he is hammering a congregation in the early church for its members' shortcomings and infidelities, their discipleship lapses. He works himself into quite a lather, which if you've read much of Paul, that doesn't take a whole lot. Uh, he was really getting after them for the way that group, any group, our group, falls short. Then suddenly in mid-diatribe, Paul says, remember, you are the body of Christ. Really? This forlorn conglomeration of inept hangers-on, they, we, are the body of Christ? It's outrageous for Jesus Christ to so limit himself in such a lousy way. Jesus began his ministry with 12, and then by our text this morning, calls 70 more. If Jesus is really who the voice at his baptism says he is, nothing less than the Son of God, then if he wants to do something, why doesn't Jesus just do it? Because that's not the way Jesus works. Calling and commissioning and sending throughout the Gospels, calling and commissioning and sending is Jesus' modus operandi. 
Note that absolutely nothing is said about the qualifications of the 70. Not about their gifts and graces, their prior experience, gender, grades in college, GPA, degrees earned, righteousness lived, proper procedures followed, SAT scores, the myriad of of qualifications by which we hire and call and choose people in and out of the church today. Apparently, prior qualifications are beside the point. It's almost as if the 70 don't have any names or stories or talent, as if they're nothing until Jesus sends them. Yet the Jesus revolution takes place. Through them, evil is dethroned. Through them, the reign of God comes. Through them, the good news gets proclaimed to a hungry and broken world. You and I, here in church this morning, are part of this outrageous propensity of Jesus to just keep reaching out and naming others to share in God's work. We are the body of Christ. And despite his past unfortunate experiences with us, Jesus continues to call more and more of us. And this morning, the thing that impresses me is the job description those 70 get, and by implication, the job description all of us get. Jesus sends these ordinary folk out to do the very same things, exactly the same things Jesus is doing. Jesus tells them when they show up in a town or at an office or on a school bus, they are to demonstrate that the kingdom of heaven has come near. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. How's that for a job description? All of this, all of it, is meant to be visible demonstration that the world truly is under God's management. Episcopal preacher Barbara Brown Taylor recounts a conversation she had with somebody who was struggling and wrestling with precisely this call and this charge. On Sunday morning, he says, I walk in church into a world which seems to be close to the way God meant it to be. People are considerate of one another. Strangers are welcomed. We pray for justice and for peace. Our sins are forgiven. When it's over, I get in my car and I begin to drive home feeling so full of love and hope it's unbelievable. But 20 miles down the road, I can feel it beginning to wear off. On Monday morning, I walk into my job and it's all gone. And I've got a whole nother week to get it back again. That's not a new problem. From the very beginning, being a Christian has meant being a sojourner in a strange land. But the reversal in our own day is that for many people, it's a life of faith and not the rest of the week that now feels strange. The moat between faith and the world has widened and the bridges to cross them have gotten so shaky. Most of the time at best, in the middle of a week, we may feel like commuters who are just having to paddle in the water between the two of them. Be that as it may, please take note, these ordinary 70 people are empowered to do big things, great 
things, God things, not small things. The body of Christ, this body of Christ is called to do great things for God, not small things. Too many of us, I think just because how it all comes down on us, we, we content ourselves with small things, institutional maintenance, keeping a roof on the church, shuffling the paperwork of an institution. Or even more challenging, like that worship attendee who begins to lose his high resolve on his drive home from church, there is much in the world, let's face it, that mitigates our joy and erodes our understanding that the world is under God's management. We want to do great things in God's name. And then we look at our phone and there's a text saying there's been another school shooting. We want to do great things in God's name, but then we have to go comfort a friend whose family is disintegrating. And then we read about a crane collapsing, killing hundreds of religious pilgrims. And then our hearts are broken by yet one more ugly, horrific experience of racism. And then we see faces of children who are hungry and abandoned. And then we see the chart that projects where the AIDS crisis is headed on this globe. And then, and then, and then, and then, then doing big things for God as the body of Christ seems so elusive and so painful. We set out to do great things for God, and then life happens. Then the world happens, and it all feels tarnished. And we don't feel much like the body of Christ in those moments. And still, Jesus calls us and calls us and calls us not to just accept status quo, but to do nothing less than the revolutionary raising of the dead, just like he did. Maybe that's why Jesus insists on telling the 70 not to worry about where they'll get the means to do all this revolutionary work, just as the 70 are warned up front that they will face rejection. It isn't enough that this untrained, unqualified, uncredentialed group of 70 is asked to change the world in a revolutionary way. Jesus calls them to this huge task with nothing left to fall back on. That makes the 70 terribly dependent we don't like that word. It makes that 70 terribly dependent on Jesus and on the assembled body of Christ. That's jolting in a world of self-sufficiency and self-reliance. Jesus sends the 70 out to live lives of interconnectedness and dependency and they get rejected. The 70, though, are not called to live behind some safe fortress any more than we are called to live here in our comfortable and safe surroundings. They are being sent into the world. We are being sent into the real world. And those who profit from the old world of conventional arrangements and present 
power structures will reject them. There are many, many, many really good reasons not to go with the 70. So what makes any of us get up and go? Knowing the perils of this and the promises, what allows us to go where Jesus sends us? I can imagine of the 70 who are sent out, there are more than 70 stories coming back, 70 different answers to why get up and go. Sometimes going doesn't mean the distance has to be all that far. Not long ago in Midtown Chicago, this happened on a city bus. The bus was filled with uh, midday commuters and people rushing to their next appointment. It was boarded at one of the stops by an elderly white woman who wasn't sure how to use her transit card. She put it in upside down. She put it in backward. The line started gathering behind her, everyone beginning to fume just a little bit. While the other passengers became agitated, the driver, a very pleasant African-American woman, patiently explained how to use the car. Keeping one hand on the wheel, she reached out and said, here, I'll show you how to do it, and it worked. The woman finally, satisfied that she was on, started walking down the aisle, but then turned back. I think it took two fares, not just one. No, honey, it just took one. I heard it beep twice. It always beeps twice. Don't worry about it. Yeah, are you sure? I think it took two fares. Come here, honey, I'll show you. And the driver took the time to show the woman the fare. Meantime, the light is cycled, red then green, red then green, red then green, three or four times, and everybody else is fuming. By this time... Everyone feeling the urgency of being late. They got to the next stop, and a man with a motorized wheelchair pulled the cord and said, I'm on the way to the VA hospital. I'm going to need some help. And you could see the cords to his oxygen tank connected to the cart. Again, the driver responded graciously, showing him how to position the, the, the wheelchair right where it needed to be, getting it over a couple more inches, and then pulling the lift so it would lower to the street. The process took a long time. You, you could sense the tension and impatience. The light, again, red, then green, red, then green, red, then green, red, then green. The driver, unfazed, was infinitely patient. She was that note of grace. As one rider got off the bus, he thanked her for her kindness. Just doing my job, have a blessed day now. It seemed in that unlikely place, one of the 70 ventured out and returned with joy and the body of Christ was visible and the kingdom of God was near. But seriously, there's a lot of reasons to just stay put. Why put yourself on the line like that? In May of 1981, the late uh, Pope John Paul II was shot when Mohammed Akka attempted to kill him. The Pope survived. Two years later, in a small white-walled cell, in Rome's Rehiba prison, John Paul, having journeyed out from the Vatican, tenderly held the hand that held the gun of the man who tried to kill him. For 21 minutes, 
The Pope sat with the would-be assassin. The two talked softly. Once or twice, Aga actually laughed a little bit. The Pope forgave him for the shooting. At the end of the meeting, Aga kissed the Pope's ring and then pressed the Pope's hand to his forehead in the Muslim gesture of respect. Now, John Paul could have easily stayed in the Vatican and issued a well-worded proclamation of forgiveness. It would have achieved the same thing. Or would it? It seems that one of the 70 ventured out and returned with joy, and the body of Christ was visible, and the kingdom of God was very, very near. You really never can know for sure what's going to happen when you leave here and go out there with Jesus. Even though it's safer in here, most of God's action is out there, not here. Have you ever had the experience of looking through somebody else's photo album and all of a sudden you see pictures of people you know, but you didn't know the people whose album it was also knew them? A literary form of this happened to me when reading a sermon by Frederick Buechner, who's a well-known author and Presbyterian minister. In the middle of Buechner's sermon, he references a man who was a dear friend and mentor of mine, a minister named Lou Patrick, who I cannot begin to tell you the profound effect he had on my life. In the sermon, Buechner is remembering an especially dark time in his life. His daughter is ill, and as Buechner says, his anxiety made him almost as ill as his daughter. Then one day the phone rang, he says, and it was a man named Lou Patrick, whom I didn't know very well then, though he's become a great friend since, who was a minister from Charlotte, North Carolina, which is about 800 miles or so from Rupert, Vermont, where I live. I assumed he was calling from home and asked him how things were going down there, only to hear him say that no, he wasn't in Charlotte. He was in an inn about 20 miles away from my house in Rupert. He knew something of what was going on in my family and in me, and he thought that maybe it would be some help to have an extra friend around for a day or two. The reason he didn't tell me in advance that he was coming is that he knew I would tell him for heaven's sake not to do anything so crazy. So for heaven's sake, he did something crazier still, which was to come those 800 miles without telling me he was coming so that for all he knew, I might not even have been there. But I was there, and for a day or two, he was there with me, and he was there for me, I don't think anything we found to say to each other amounted to very much. There was nothing particularly religious about it. I don't remember even spending so much time talking about my troubles. We took a couple of walks, shared a meal or two. We smoked our pipes and drove around to see some of the countryside. That was about it. I have never forgotten how he came all that distance just for that. I also believe that although as far as I can remember, we never so much as mentioned Christ, Christ was in all the air we breathed those days. Across the aisle on a bus, across town from palace to prison, 800 miles on a hunch or a hope. 
The world is at work today eroding our resolve to do great things as the body of Christ. Things happen that drive us closer to despair than to hope. But Jesus, in the face of all that, just keeps sending and sending and sending and sending. The body of Christ, Jesus keeps on sending. It seems that more of the 70 ventured out and returned in joy and that body of Christ was visible and the kingdom of heaven was just that much nearer. So the question on this October Sunday is, will we go? Jesus forms us as the body of Christ through this table and the gifts of this table. We are formed as the body of Christ. Jesus reforms us as the body of Christ everywhere, especially where there is hardship or despair or leaking hope or desperate prayers. Will we take the risk? and step out of any safety and any cushion and move out with all the 70s that ever have been and go where Jesus says he's about to go. It's a big task. Nothing small is ever asked of the body of Christ. We are being asked to do nothing less than the miraculous, countercultural, bold act of curing, raising, and casting out. Oh, and we're being asked not to worry at all. We're being asked to do all these great things and not to worry at all about where the means will come from to do this revolutionary work. Risk and joy, peace and peril, big dreams and bigger tasks for heaven's sake. Jesus is looking for at least 70 good women and men, boys and girls. More than 70 here. Maybe Jesus is looking for 700 women and men, boys and girls to take what he offers to the world and offers from this table and to do exactly the same ministry he did. And oh, oh, are we so needed in this breaking world. Will you go? Will we, as the body of Christ at Westlake Hills, go you know, I don't know you that well yet, but I've begun to hear some of your amazing stories of faith and courage and discipleship and following and being sent. And I can tell in this room right now, there are those of you who have gone out and are, have come back with tales to tell. There are some in this room who ventured out and have come back in joy and are here to tell all of us that the reign of God, the wonder of God, the work of God, the kingdom of God is very, very near. Amen.